Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, which is their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. And we're down to number 24 on the list. Which means that in this episode, we'll be discussing Dave Grusin's score to the 1981 drama On Golden Pond. On Golden Pond was produced by Bruce Gilbert, written by Ernest Thompson, and directed by Mark Rydell. John, give us a sense of On Golden Pond. It's a peaceful, interpersonal story set against a beautiful natural backdrop about an old retired couple arriving at their vacation home for a summer. Yeah, the old couple is famously Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda in his final film role. And also, for a few scenes, Jane Fonda as their daughter, Dabney Coleman as her boyfriend, and a kid. So Henry Fonda's old man character is a cranky curmudgeon who is facing the twilight of his years with grumpiness, which is something his daughter doesn't take kindly to. But over the course of the movie, an unlikely friendship develops between him and this young whippersnapper who is left behind with Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn at their vacation home. And he spends the summer with them. And the movie sort of gestures in the direction of people learning things about themselves because of this. Good enough? Good enough. So uh, in last episode, we talked about How the West Was Won by Alfred Newman. And uh, this is a different... Kettle of fish. Uh, Yes. Notes. Kettle of notes is what a score is often called. Yes. This is a different kettle of fish from... Kettle of notes. I'm not going to say that. This is a different deal Mm. from How the West Was Won or indeed from anything else on the AFI's list of 25 film scores yeah that's right it is different why how are you going to say it was different i guess i would characterize it as the kind of film score that isn't often singled out for discussion of film scores and i actually looked forward to talking about one of those uh, less conspicuous types of scores because there are many movies that have scores more in this vein we just don't often think about them less conspicuous is a really good starting point for talking about it. That's what it is really about. I think the score is being not conspicuous. And I think one of the things that distinguishes it from all 24 other entries on that list is this has got to be the shortest score in terms of minutes of music of any on the list, don't you think? I haven't gone through and looked, but you're probably right, because I think there's only about half an hour of music in the more than 90 minute movie, right? Yeah, it's like 111 minutes or something. I would contest the idea that it's not conspicuous, though. I mean, I know I introduced that word. But I think the music is extremely conspicuous in the opening, which Mm -hmm. makes it significant throughout as an element of the texture of the film. We listen to the what we just heard over blank screen with credits, and only later does the picture come in. We're really brought into the movie through the music initially, and I think... So what word are we really looking for? Subtle? Well, it has to do with the emotional tone of the movie. I mean, it's a very mild-mannered kind of movie. (laughs) Mild-mannered. It seems to me like the prototype for every, like, Hallmark Channel movie. It's a quiet movie that you can go to with your grandparents, and it's not too challenging. It touches on some darker elements of relationships and mortality, but it just touches on them. And you get to look at Pretty Vacation Spot. It did terrific business in 1981. I think it was the second most successful movie of the year after Raiders of the Lost Ark, because you can't really take your grandparents to that. Well, not my grandparents anyway. Yeah, Uh, I can't take your grandparents to it. No. The screenplay was written by Ernest Thompson off of his play, which was a successful play on Broadway not too long before the movie was made. And... A reviewer said something like, the play was pleasant, but anodyne and unchallenging processed, and they called it American cheese. Sort of paint by numbers and easy does it, morality and, you know, not too deep profundity. But pointing out that in adapting it for the screen, it did take on some notes of more complex meaning or a better entertainment overall product by dint of 
some of the you know really excellent elements of the filmmaking, including the beautiful nature photography, and most importantly, the performances of Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. But I absolutely think that the score is a very important element to differentiate the film from the play and to make it, you know, as, as this reviewer said, a nicely aged cheddar cheese that has depth to it and has something more to say to an audience. Although I don't want to run down American cheese. I will melt American cheese on literally anything and be happy about it. Something I'd like to talk about in relation to this score, the movie as a whole, but, but definitely the music, is cheese, the concept of cheese. Uh-huh. You know, what it means to identify something as cheese and also to say, well, I, I would melt that cheese on something. You know, something I was going to say about the main title is that it's really effective at establishing the kind of emotional space that the movie is going to take place in, you know, like a lullaby or like a hypnotic induction. It just sort of draws the audience to a certain kind of emotional place, and then the movie gets to take place there. Yeah, uh, hypnotic lullaby, I like those words for it. You know, it's all about nature. It really weds with the nature visuals very easily. We're listening to the actual full mix of what you hear when you're watching the movie, not just the music on its own. So you could hear the calls of the loon. It's like they came out to greet us. Yeah, and it, it sort of fits in between the little piano figures and glisses and things and as though they were also notes and it, the loon calls sort of feel like they are a part of the score and I think it definitely gives this all-encompassing feeling of you are in this placid world of nature. With a lot of movie music the intent is to bring the audience to a heightened state of excitement about the heightened world that the movie's going to take place in and here, it was specifically bringing you to a quiet... I mean, it's a vacation movie. It's like a movie about people relaxing. It's a movie about a place where people go to reflect. And the music just shows you we're, we're only going to be going from... This movie only goes up to four. <laughs> so the music is only going to start at three. And then you can get really excited for a four somewhere down the line. There's a four or so maybe 4.5 in the climactic big action sequence towards the end of the movie. Yeah, um, action sequence is, is strong, but yes. Uh, yes, the point is that there's not a lot of action in this movie, and it is very relationship-driven and simple human uh, conversational tone. And I think that the music intentionally does not try to heighten these interpersonal situations, and the, it stays out of the way Maybe that's another way of putting what we were both trying to say at the top. There's a bunch of different elements here. There's the very warm, mellow tune that you hear at the beginning that's sort of the main theme. Grusin plays the piano. That's right. He, he himself is a jazz pianist. And that's his background. I think that his pianistic technique really goes a long way to making this work. Absolutely. Uh, I think that, you know, all those kids who wanted to play this theme and then learned to play it kind of square, it would sound very cheesy. And he's able to bring a little authenticity to it. With I agree. Yeah, he has very good artistry and, and touch to it. Um, it's a little meandery to call it a real theme, I thought. Yeah, it's kind of a chord progression and a few ideas about where to put in the, the notes that count. Yeah, and some twinkling on top of it. Those twinkles, twinkle flourishes up top and resonant bass sort of pads sitting there uh, as punctuation. 
that's an important technique for guys like Randy Newman. I feel like that happens in The Natural. That kind of quasi-mystical Americana. This style was pretty widespread for a while, and it still shows up in movies that want to get at the simple things, the basic things. Right, the simple things. It's not the Copeland Americana. It's a different one. It's right. a more pop-inflected Americana. Absolutely. You know, those little grace notes that he puts in. It's like a jazz player's idea of simplicity. I wouldn't be surprised if made-for-TV Hallmark Channel movies today still play music very much like this. I wouldn't be surprised if they're tempted with this. It seemed pretty clear to me that the twinkling represents the light glistening off the pond. Oh, absolutely. I have written, I, I took notes, Andy, uh, as I was watching. You'll be pleased Congratulations. to learn. Thank you. And uh, I specifically wrote somewhere here that, um, I wrote that they are glints, that these little piano flourishes are like glints of uh, light on, on water, but he takes them and he affixes them to little moments, little head turns or looks or gestures just to put a glint on it, to put a, a, a gilt edge. I thought of, you remember when you were a kid, the little golden books? Of course. And their pages had cardboard, thick pages that had a golden gilt edge around these kind of hardboard pages. And uh, the spine was golden on those. Were the edges of the pages also golden? I think maybe there were some special editions of some of the titles that had guilt on the edges of the of the pages anyway even if there weren't i imagined such a thing when uh i was listening to these little twinkly flourish glints that are all over the score just little shinies on the edge yeah and did you find that effective or did it feel like someone was trying to uh you know sprinkle dust on your face the whole time uh i think it ranged i think definitely some of it was effective yeah i think i think a lot of it was effective but i think it also depends on idiosyncratically how uh, in tune with the emotion that is being glinted on the audience is as they're watching. Probably varies from person to person how much effectiveness or annoyance. Yeah, I'm talking about you. You, you can go for it. If you want to say that you did not find this movie moving, <laughs> I, I think that's welcome here. I did find it moving, and I did find the performances wonderful, and I did like the music, I'd hate for this to be a recurring theme on our show, but I wonder whether it is one of the 25 greatest examples of film scoring in the history of American cinema. It's hard for me to believe that as well. But I do think that it makes for an interesting addition to a playlist if you're going to play 25. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's probably what it's doing here. It's, it's rounding out a playlist. I wanted to take a listen to the very opening of the main title. So what struck me about that immediately is all of those notes sound very considered and very precisely placed and just so. It immediately reminded me of the similar spare, very slow, considered piano music in the score of American Beauty by Thomas Newman. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know exactly the part you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that this is definitely influential of that that kind of precise note picking on the piano where he really pared down the notes he was going to play and put them exactly so and let them breathe. And I think that is very lovely and very mature. And I think that that maturity is not consistent throughout the score. And I think that it later on, there are all these little flourishes, that especially when he is speckling them between dialogue, which he does later on, seem less considered and seem a little bit more almost improvised rather than highly considered. I agree with that, but I don't agree that it doesn't work in those later sections. In fact, 
Okay. No, I, I guess I wasn't saying necessarily that it didn't work, but go on. I liked how he was able to let this mostly piano solo texture. I mean, it's not mostly piano solo. He's got a small orchestra. He's got strings, winds. Sure. He's got an electric keyboard. He's got a harp for sure. And he's and then got later a on, he's got drums and bass. But the piano really leads. The, yes. The whole opening section is a piano solo. So he establishes this texture and this sound and this instrumentation at the outset. And we think of that as kind of the home base for the movie. So I respected that he was able to start with, as you say, a very considered and precise and placed composed sound and then bring that same... Our, our idea of this pianist into a more improvisatory place. I liked that he used some of the techniques that I associate with like, you know, if a lounge singer does patter and their pianist covers underneath noodles, there's a certain sense of kind of just keeping the emotional space open without having to make compositional claims. And I felt like he did that later in the score. And to me, being able to go there fairly smoothly because the musical elements remained similar was an asset. I thought that was kind of cool that he did that. But I guess you had sort of the opposite reaction to the same move. No, I, I won't disagree that it was cool. Uh, I, I do think it was effective. I'm just that I uh, I felt like it was less composed. Definitely did feel improvisatory or noodly even. So like here, much later in the movie, they're doing dialogue and he inserts some of those between. Of course we can. Put up the anchor. Get up on deck. Hey, get back here. I forgot you're a hotshot boat driver. Here, you take the wheel and I'll navigate. Yeah? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to do this. The chord changes that are happening there don't correspond to the movement of the characters or their emotional interaction. They're just kind of water-treading changes. And the places where he's inserting those things aren't commenting on what's just been said. They are just keeping the space open. Yeah. And because it sounds kind of like cabaret noodling, the audience just rolls with it. I mean, I feel very comfortable letting that kind of sort of murmuring from the pit band just happened. It didn't seem obtrusive, and yet it's sort of keeping this emotional space alive. And I admired him for doing that. Often what you find in dialogue scoring is it kind of lays back completely and waits for the dialogue to be over, or tries to insert itself and comment on what's being said. And I thought this was a nice middle ground that this piano solar texture made available to him. That's true. I can't disagree with that. And I think it forms a very marked contrast with, for example, the previous score that we talked about in its scoring of dialogue scenes in which very accomplished and intricate classical treatments of the theme are wallpapered underneath full scenes of dialogue without really interacting with when somebody is talking and when they aren't or what the points of inflection are in the, in the dialogue. So this is a very functionally different way of treating it. It's not wallpaper in that it waits for the spaces. It's jazz-like, in fact, for a jazz player. You wait for where it seems appropriate for you to put in your half a cent. Right. And so I thought that was done tastefully. You know, I think for an audience that wasn't watching, thinking, oh, I've got to talk about this score later, it would be truly subliminal. The score comes in and goes out. When I went through to catalog where there's actually music, there were quite a number of, like, five-second cues right. where... We reach the end of one scene, and then as like a tiny little piece of tape across the scene. Uh, maybe I can lie down to pick the berries. Martin and Ethel. Hi, Charlie. They were like bumpers. They were like uh, sitcom bumpers. You know, we finished the scene in Ross's apartment, and now we're back in Central Perk. Do 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 do. Yeah, it's, it's like music as an editing technique. Exactly. You use music to make a splice. There was a couple of those towards the beginning, like it cuts from the pond to them playing Parcheesi, and it sounds very much like a sitcom establishing bumper. What are you doing? 
What do you mean? What am I doing? Don't do that. Why not? You did it. Never mind. I'll explain later. Right now, it's a new scene. It's enough time to do the establishing shot to kind of set yourself up for the next scene, and here's dialogue. You know, the movie already suffers from seeming stagey because it's mm-hmm. taken from a stage play. I thought a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the timing is sort of stage timing for these stage laughs where you kind of imagine the slow moving Broadway audience going, oh, ho, 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 for five seconds. Right. Hey, I met that nicest couple. Huh? Where? In the woods. A couple of people? No, a couple of antelope. Of course, a couple of people. That kind of scoring is such theatrical scoring. Like, you're not going to score during the scene because they take a different amount of time every night. You're just going to score every scene change. You have to score the scene change because the crew has to come on and move things around. (laughs) Come on, help me get the canoe off the porch. Yeah, that's right. So another example of that I noted, I think, is transition to Chelsea's departure. I I noted that as also sounding that kind of transition establishing bumper. Absolutely. And this is actually a cue I wanted to talk about as one of the weakest in the score for another reason, which is related. The scene that that cue follows is a kind of crucial, ambiguous scene in which Chelsea, the daughter, has just sort of let herself voice some of the tension she feels with her father. And then we see her the next day reflecting kind of unhappy at the lake. And her mother, Catherine Hepburn, comes over to her and says, Chelsea, you have a great big chip on your shoulder, which is very unattractive. It is, it is. You stay away for years at a time. You never come home unless I beg you to, and then when you do, all you can do is be disagreeable about the past. What's the point? Don't you think that Everyone looks back on their childhood with a certain amount of bitterness and regret about something. It doesn't have to ruin your life, darling. You're a big girl now. Aren't you tired of it all? Boa, boa, boa. Life marches by, Chels. I suggest you get on with it. As a viewer, I felt like in the context of this movie, is this good, constructive, life-affirming advice? Or is this showing that Chelsea is all alone with her feelings because her mother turns a blind eye to this aspect of the relationship? Or, you know, what is that? What kind of interaction has just happened here? The mother is comforting the daughter and saying, you're very unattractive. It's a strange moment with some emotional ambiguities that it opens up. And we process whatever that moment has meant to us during that music we just heard, which starts out like... We've got this suspended chord like, oh, feelings are complicated. And then... And then meanwhile, back at Cheers. Right. Now, complete, perfect cadence. It is resolved. We're done. Thank God. Yeah, and I think it's as you say. I think there's a full cadence there. There, you know, a sense of complete musical resolution within that very short cue. It's there, like you say, because of the Cheers principle that, well, now we're in this scene in which no one is angry at anyone, so let's just get ready for this scene. But I think that it weakens the drama by showing you that the scope of what the movie is thinking about is kind of 
technical scene by scene. And that's part of what makes it feel stagey is that it's it's not really going long in a way that a movie could. Well, let me offer an explanation, I think, because that, this ties into something else I wanted to say about the score. That moment where it opens out and I said, meanwhile, back to Cheers, I think what is happening there is that is when it cuts away and shows us again establishing shots of the pond, Golden Pond. And shows us these lovely nature vistas, these idyllic images. And I kept noticing again and again throughout the score that he really seems to be beholden to the pond. That's the thing that he felt perhaps most comfortable and most compelled to imbue with music. I agree with your criticism of how this winds up limiting the emotional palette of the storytelling. But I did find it effective in terms of conveying this sense of place and the timelessness of it, that this place is just there and exists out of time and goes on existing no matter what petty human dramas unfold around it, that it's this, you know, this little slice of nature is the thing that we're actually here to see. And the things that people learn and the way that they are mean to each other or not mean to each other matter little, you know, they're all dwarfed by nature. They're the backdrop to the idyllic setting. I think that was the position the score was taking. Yeah, actually, that's nicely put. And I think that was effective because I think I felt like it gave it this kind of magical uh, sense of, uh, you know, just existing, existing really hard. Yeah, <laughs> which is that, yeah, it gestures toward being kind of more of an existential movie than a yes than an interpersonal dramatic movie, and I like how you're saying yeah, it. the term "existing really hard" was actually in the original Sartre. Yeah, I I haven't read that one, but I believe you. Um, what you just said clarified it for me that it seems probably intentional that someone said let's make this movie so that the real story of the movie is just that life is good and nature is beautiful and these scenes from a middling Broadway play are in some sense the <laughs> backdrop to that. Yeah, I think so. And I think that is the explanation again for why sometimes it feels like the music is not really dealing with the scenes from the middling Broadway play, but is like, okay, okay, and nature, here we are. Yeah, you're right. And in another way, I guess, if I'm saying that, you know, the opening is kind of an induction into the emotional space, you could look at each of these transition cues as a kind of reinduction. like, well, maybe you got a little worked up having to listen to those people be mean to each other, but here we go again. <laughs> you're getting very comfortable. I even felt a sense of reintroduction to it in the the first opportunity to be reintroduced in the second cue, which is after the main title ends, and then we cut to the interior of the cabin where they come to stay, and everything's covered in dust cloths, and Henry Fonda looks at clippings on the wall and old photographs. So this is the second start of music that we hear, and I immediately got this impression, I, I, I wrote down, this is what the main title was talking about. This is the location where we are setting this movie and, you know, including the cabin into the landscape. I see. You're saying by using related material, because those first cue chimes there are essentially the same as the chimes we heard the piano at the beginning. He's saying nature equals this vacation house, these people. Yeah, that's right. He's saying it's a natural setting, but it's not purely nature it is this cabin on the pond it's the overall setting of where these people go i see which is like the underlying premise of a vacation is that by going to this special place yes. you are getting closer to the root of uh, existence of the natural yeah that's right i think that it's exactly conveying that that's the ethos that i think was at the forefront of what he wanted to convey this is maybe a kind of highfalutin reference, but when I was in college, I took a course on modernism, and I remember there was a lecture about how modernist literature would often set things on vacations because it became this kind of microcosm in which existential matters could be addressed more directly because, you know, if you're only someplace for two weeks or two months, you have to live out some kind of miniature life there. Yeah, there you go. Existential microcosm, or as Sartre put it, Existing real hard. Existing real hard for just a short time. It's a highfalutin reference for this movie because the movie is kind of buying that kit but not doing anything with it. <laughs> I, I don't really feel like... I feel like they, they get the mileage out of 
just the premise. Like, yeah, it would feel like that if I was on vacation with my family where we <laughs> didn't explore anything and no dialogue had been written for us. It's just kind of goes with the territory. Uh, I wanted to say something about that same first cue, which was that, again, I liked about Grusin's style that it allowed him to do things that might seem a little on the nose elsewhere, but because it seems to come out of sort of improvisatory noodling, it actually works better. So this is the main theme as we hear it at the beginning. Da 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 the four. Right. Da 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 back to one. Landing like that on the four, on the the uh, the four chord, is super important, and that happens an awful lot. Yeah, Grusin used the word churchy, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about. Right. People think of that chord as the amen chord. Yes. Yeah, let me find the quote from Grusin about what he considered this style to relate to. Um, I was going through a process of trying to determine where you start with a blank page. It's all very good to say the picture's about these emotions and you need to convey that somehow to an audience. For me, it was the first picture I did that I finally analyzed thoroughly enough to realize I just deal with the geography, the scenery, and in some cases, the culture. If I had to boil it down to a few words, this is New England. So what's the music of New England? Let's see, how about some Calvinist hymns and some of that very tonal stuff? It wasn't invented in New England, came from where we all came from, Europe and elsewhere, but that's how I ended up with it. All came from Europe. Yeah, well... That's Dave Grusin for you. I feel so gratified that he said, my job was the geography. Because that's exactly what I thought. Ha ha ha. Uh-huh. Remember? Remember? Remember when I said that? I remember. You said you, we've been talking about right? that. couple times in the main title and we get used to it. It goes to the four, then goes to the one. So then in this first scene, Norman is looking around and we hear that same piano solo theme come back. Dave Grusin is just playing his way through this lovely meditative theme. And at the very moment when Norman, who's been looking at old pictures of himself, looks up in a mirror and sees his now elderly face, Instead of going to the one on the second phrase, it goes to the six, which is the classic surprise sadness. Right. And it sounds like the kind of organic switch up, you know, it's a substitution of one chord for another that could easily be made by someone who's noodling at this theme, kind of making it up as he goes and just playing with it. And so the matching, the synchronizing of the music to the visual because of this kind of poppy, jazzy, improvisatory sound that has been established, is able to seem subtle, even though the chords that he's using are pretty much the most on-the-nose chords you could use for explaining what emotions are being felt. Like, the whole movie is scored with essentially the pop chords. One, four, right. five, six, I, I three. agree. And I, and he said that, he kind of hinted at that in that quote that you read, this kind of Calvinist hymn tonality and that everything is diatonic, which means that all the chords are based on the same scale. Right. So the liability of, if you only play on the white keys on the piano, if you're one of these kids who wants to play, you know, like if you go on YouTube now, you'll see lots of emo kids of the current YouTube generation who want to play theme from On Golden Pond because it's one of those soulful things you can play on the piano. Because it is just this kind of deep digging into the sadness of the six chord and the sadness of the three chord and the warmth of the four chord. And when you score a movie with those kinds of chords, it can often feel like your emotional palette is so limited that it's uh, sort of I'm, insulting I'm to the characters. But I don't feel that that's the case in this movie because of the texture. That's the point I'm trying to make. You know, All if right. a full string section was like six, 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 six minor chord it would feel like a blunt instrument. But because the piano is this delicate thing and it's it's exploratory, it worked for me. I agree. It does work. And I think he does do it with artistry. And, you know, like anything built out of simple elements, it can be done better or worse, or it can be done with more artistry or less. And he does do it with great artistry. Uh, I did just want to push back against the notion that, you know, the choice of chords is somehow easier or pat 
I just want to point out that there's not that many chords, uh, and everybody uses these chords. It's not like, oh, he's making some sort of easy uh, cop-out decision. I don't want my position to be misunderstood as saying, like, there's fancy chords for fancy people and simple chords for simple <laughs> people, but there is a kind of limited range. Sure. There's a limited range of things he's willing to do harmonically. Well, okay, I think every time point. that theme comes up, it's in the same key. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do modulations. He doesn't do chromatics. He just kind of plays around like you would play around on the white keys if you were an intermediate pianist. That is an important point, and I think a better observation, not simply that the chords are easily chosen, but rather that there's a limited range of them. And I think that is intentional, and I agree that it comes off because because he's good at doing that. Right. Whereas in that cue I was talking about earlier, the one after the Chelsea conversation, it feels like for that to end with 5-1 or whatever it ends with, with a nice, clean, here we're home again. Yeah. It does start to feel a pat, or at least it did in that moment to me, like I could have used some more ambiguity in musical form. Here's another spot where I actually have written down in my notes stuff happens and then we go back into the pond the pond is everything i was uh moved to write in my notes and i think that mm -hmm. is at the end of the back porch confession yeah let's talk our way through this cue i think this is actually a really interesting case of dialogue scoring i was earlier saying i thought it was nice that he was able to score dialogue by just being a accompanist who's covering the patter and here he really goes all out in the other direction really gets right in there with Katherine Hepburn, which you have to be pretty bold to say, I'm going to be inside your performance and do the same thing you're doing. That's true. And it, maybe this is the only place where that really happens, if not one of very few places where he dares to get in the same performance space as the dialogue, as you say. You want to know why I came back so fast? I got the end of our lane. I couldn't remember where the old town road was. One little way in the woods, there was nothing familiar, not one damn tree. It scared me half to death. So these little piano details are reminiscent of running back here to you. Some little figures See that happened in the scene that he's talking pretty about. Pretty face. I could feel safe. I was still me. Yeah, those figures sort of correspond to his fears. Exactly. He's sort of quoting them, although I think they were played with winds before, and now they're on the piano to sort of soften them. So here, this motif we've learned to associate with nature and the flowers and here he brings it in when the loving wife comes in with her comforting words let's listen to these words after lunch after we've gobbled up all those silly strawberries we'll take ourselves to the old town road we've been there a thousand times darling and you'll remember it all. Listen to me, mister. You're my knight in shining armor. Don't you forget it. You're going to get back on that horse, and I'm going to be right behind you, holding on tight, and away we're going to go, go, go. I don't like horses. <laughs> You are a pretty old dame, aren't you? Oh. What are you doing with a daddy or some bitch like me? Well, I haven't the vaguest idea. Yeah, that's what made me write The Pond is Everything, because after all of that, we cut to the pond, and then it seems like the music is finally free to say what it really wants to say about it. It's not just a matter of being free to say what it wants to say, but it that becomes the resolution. Exactly. The pond, the, the pond is the resolution. The pond is, well, here we are. This is the backdrop for all of the days of our lives. <laughs> but I don't want to dismiss it. I think that is really effective. You it, know, no, it is. The movie wants to be a tearjerker movie, and... My eyes wetted, I would say, twice, maybe. 
lightly. And I think it was always in the scenes when Catherine Hepburn goes into her choked up register. Sure. And I, I thought that was really beautifully negotiated by Grusin in what we just listened to, where her performance goes first from uh, buffing him up, telling him everything is fine. You're safe, you old poop. And you're definitely still you. Thinking on poor old Charlie. And then she goes to a mellower place and he goes from an oboe to a clarinet. After lunch. After we've gobbled up all those silly strawberries, we'll take ourselves to the old town road. We've been there a thousand times, darling. And then she goes to an even more hushed place and he goes into the Rhodes piano. And you'll remember it all. Listen to me, mister. And then she's sort of choked up. You're my knight in shining armor. Don't you forget it. And get on that horse and go, go, go. And he's orchestrated all the way down to these little harp sounds at that point. We're gonna go, go, go. I don't like horses. To do that in a way that doesn't give away the performance in advance, doesn't detract from the performance, uh, and just stays right in there with her, gets on the horse and goes, goes, goes with her, is bold, and I'm impressed at how effectively he's able to do that. You know, I think I was being moved as I watched that, and that shows how how smooth the composition is. Agreed. That is a particularly strong moment. I think that is sort of the pull quote for the movie, that sequence of lines, you're my knight in shining armor, the couple sentences from there on to uh, get on our horse and go, go, go. That was selected as the number whatever it was, quote, out of 100 all-time movie quotes on the AFI's list of 100 movie quotes. That's the entry from this movie. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I bet Dave Grusin had something to do with that. I bet he did. That's obviously part of why, you know, why the AFI likes this movie. The AFI likes this score and it liked that quote. And uh, yeah, very well observed on how he supports that quote there. And then bringing in the theme, which is what eventually feeds out into the lake, as you noted. Yeah. The scene begins with Norman expressing his fear, uh, his agitation. His wife, uh, Ethel, calms him. They nestle together. She says, we're going to get on a horse. He sort of deflates it but gives in by saying i don't like horses and then the theme comes back you know here's their relationship here is their love reestablished dramatically you are a pretty old dame aren't you what are you doing with a daddy or something that's like me well i haven't the vaguest and then it feeds out such thin stuff on paper. I mean, this is the American cheese being converted into cheddar cheese before your eyes. It's so thinly conceived, but the sensitivity to every little molecule of actual emotional content keeps it alive for the viewer. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's also telling that he only chose to give this kind of very finely observed treatment to this scene. And, okay, I think we should talk about the other kinds of music. There's a couple other kinds of music I think we should touch on in the score. Let's talk about what turns up on the soundtrack album as being called a lake song. Hello. We'll be with you all morning. We've got yeah. the news and traffic coming up at 7. Is this... Is this uh... You're listening to John and Andy. Good morning. It's a beautiful day out. This is Lake Song from the original soundtrack. It's a slightly different performance, but it's essentially material that shows up in the movie. The first time we hear this music is when we cut to Jane Fonda and Dabney Coleman, the young couple, out on the lake for the few days that they're there and Jane Fonda is swimming around and showing off her body. You look amazing, Jane. You're 44. Your body is amazing. What is your workout secret? (laughs) Oh my God, Jane Fonda, look at her. Doesn't really have anything to do with the movie, but there it is. She produced it. She's entitled. I don't know if she produced it, but she 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 definitely made it happen. She produced that body, so she's entitled. 
So we see her swimming around, and then the mailman comes, and it's just kind of like happy days on the lake. Right, and I think this is the first time we have heard any percussion in this score. Yeah, I think that's right. Which immediately sort of takes what we've heard before and makes it poppier. Oh, for sure. A lot poppier. And it gets even more poppy. So I feel like this whole mode he goes into... Dr. Goldstein can't take your call right now, but could you just hold for a moment? Okay, great, thanks. (laughs) Uh, It just sounds like CVS to me. Yeah. So this sounds so typically 80s, right? Why why is that exactly? I think Dave Brewson was part of the uh, origination of that sound. He founded this record label. You know, I looked a little bit into his discography and he was basically like a bebop jazz pianist in the 60s. But then at some point in the 70s, he sort of changed into this, uh, I guess, what's called jazz fusion style or contemporary jazz or smooth jazz or something like that with these, with these pop elements with a kind of easygoing, uh, easy, listen. easy listening. And it, I don't think yet was completely associated with music. I mean, I think they took it pretty seriously and i think its use in this movie in 1981 was a hundred percent sincere not just sincere but like all the emotional content of this music was supposed to be coming across all the excitement of that that ride pattern and so now it sounds kind of like a packaged cheese i mean that's really the musical equivalent of american cheese now but which again i like very much which again you like very much and you know i kind of like this kind of music in some pre-judgmental part of me that's yeah. like, yeah, it uh, feels and, good. And this also seemed to me the most reminiscent of his score for Tootsie, right? Doesn't that sound like Tootsie? Yeah, right. Da, 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 da. There you go. Is that, what, is that how Tootsie goes? Because, because I've been trying to call Tootsie to mind the score, and what I keep winding up hearing in my head is... The um, Simpsons end credits Hill Street Blues version. Uh huh. Well, that makes sense because I think Hill Street Blues, <laughs> you know, the theme of Hill Street Blues arises out of this style. That's right. That's and that's Mike Post. Mike Post. Yeah, it is Mike Post. But you know what is by Dave Grusin is the theme from St. Elsewhere. Aha. Uh-huh. Which, uh, until this past week of thinking I might have to talk about Dave Grusin, I had never heard the full album version of it before, but it's kind of fun. But here's something I wanted to mention about this style. So here it's 1981, and this movie about people living human lives that's not supposed to be dismissive of them at all. It's supposed to be a celebration of being alive, and here's the emotion of joy being expressed with this music. Ten years later, so maybe this needn't be a confession, but... As you might imagine, like many people my age who are interested in having a conversation podcast about movie music, John Williams is like a big part of my original interest in movie music. So I know more about John Williams scores than perhaps is proportionally necessary. So an obscurity in John Williams's output that I am needlessly well aware of is that the first cue in the movie Hook, which I consider basically a failed movie that I don't enjoy at all, but I'm going to talk about it now. The first cue in the movie Hook, 1991, I think it is, so exactly 10 years later, is an outright Dave Grusin, not parody, but they tempt it with a Dave Grusin track, and then he wrote a Dave Grusin sound-alike. which is both not something that John Williams would ever do otherwise. It's a, it's an oddity, and it sounds like this, and it's, as you can hear, exactly the same stuff. I'm bringing it up because in Hook, part of the conceit of the movie that doesn't really work because the movie doesn't really work, I think what was intended here is that at the beginning, it connotes this adult contemporary type of movie, 
a certain emotional palette. You know, at the beginning of Hook, it's like Peter grew up and now he's just another guy in a suit who doesn't remember his inner child. And he's walking through offices and talking and, you know, taking meetings. And we hear this Dave Grusin music sound alike throughout because the point of the movie in 1991 is that there's this real emotional space of wonder and fantasy that's going to be opened up with the full orchestra later. And this is this kind of fake out that they're giving you this you know, thin soup of, of uh, hold music, essentially, which is what this sounds like, and that it's going to be this wondrous surprise when we get to the real movie, which is strings and, and brass and, and all kinds of sound. And so I, I bring it up because I feel like over those 10 years, this musical style went from being something that is the expression of joy to something that's kind of like all too familiar prepackaged expression of joy that deserves to be superseded by something better and i feel like that's about how you know i have to be in a real trance of receptibility to to not hear a kind of datedness when this music comes on in the movie it really feels like only in 1981 did that have the emotional associations that uh, it's meant to have in this movie yeah, that's very well said. A trance of receptibility for it to not be dated. Yeah, and I, I think the word I was looking for was a trance of receptiveness. I don't think receptibility is a word. Um, <laughs> Important distinction. Yeah, and I think I remember feeling myself make a conscious decision to try to get to that space as I was watching. Because, because the movie is earnest, and it's sort of coming by it honestly. Here are some nice people having a nice time. Uh, here is some attractively peppy music. It's, uh, it's got a beat. It's happy. It is, you know, easy to follow, but it has complexity to it. And, you know, we want to let the audience hear this at the same time as they see a string of clips of them doing various fun things on the lake, riding boats, fishing. And, yeah, it sort of it comes by it honestly. And you're right that it... It didn't hold up in time as having that sincerity of emotion, but it, I am willing to give it credit. I think you're right in observing that it deserves credit for uh, coming into it independently. Ah, the New Hampshire hornpipe. Exactly. So I think his use of the term hornpipe it is meant to be a nod to Baroque forms. Oh, really? I think a hornpipe is just kind of a sailor's dance or a right. folk dance. I think that's his thing. It's like it's a hornpipe because it's for a scene with a boat. Yeah, you're probably right. Anyway, it sure is a hornpipe. <laughs> I'm not sure it is. This is, uh, this is the, the scene of the little kid gets to take a joyride on the boat. And this is, uh, this is Billy's joyride. That's right. And on the motorboat. When this kicks in, the... The viewer really has to deal with their uh, <laughs> sense of anachronism. Um, which I did, you know? I yeah. did pretty readily. It's, it's kind of catchy. It is catchy. It's an attractive piece of music. Okay, so we mentioned that there were two other species of music happening in this score, and we just dealt with one of them. And I think another one is this kind of action score, is what I was jokingly referring to as action music. These are really the only spots where Grusin is scoring to picture in an action-y way, you know, where he's heightening the emotion that is directly on the screen rather than reminding us of something else or just playing a mood, you know, setting a substrate off of which emotion can be built. I didn't think these worked. Did they work for you? Uh, I was okay with them. What I wrote in my notes as I was going through it was, here's the first time he's asserting that there are stakes and I'm not sure these are the stakes. I think he might just be reacting to a kind of heightened scene in a way that the music didn't need to go there. Yeah, that's a good point. So the first time is when Norman gets lost in the woods and we heard him confessing as much in the knight in shining armor scene. Right. The scene that that is a reaction to is him having this sort of trippy experience of not recognizing the trees around him. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it does play a little heavy-handedly. Because we hear these full string chords for the first time. Yeah. 
It's as though they're saying, this is when the drama happens, but it's really just this is the moment when there's physical action on screen, and it, it's kind of a misdirection to suggest that that's when the drama happens. I think that's fair, and I, I think you could probably say the same thing for the echo of it that happens at the end when Billy <laughs> rams the motorboat into a rock and throws Henry Fonda, I assume, a stuntman. I hope so. I hope so, because he really gets flung off of the bow of a boat into the water. And uh, and that is an action moment. And then following that, Catherine Hepburn goes looking for them out on the lake. And she, when she discovers them hanging onto a rock... I think this is actually the real Catherine Hepburn in a Oh, absolutely. Dives into the water, uh, the bow of the boat to go and rescue them. They film it in a way where you are like, that is Catherine Hepburn at the age of 76 or whatever she is. Yeah. Diving and swimming. Look at her go. Like a real nice racing dive into the water. But anyway, in both of those cases, the music gets a little... For a movie that's been kind of about threes and fours, and then when the kid goes on a joyride, like a, a cheerful five, mm-hmm. and then it's like... There's a seven happening. There's an eight. And as a viewer, I thought, I I, I don't know. I thought if this movie had a seven in it, it would be like when the daughter is upset with the father. Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's right. Or if the movie had a seven in it, it would be when he almost dies at the end of the movie. He has a heart (laughs) attack scare. And then, you know, they have a, a long scene, which is very touchingly played by both of them. And Catherine Hepburn is huddled, is knelt over what she thinks might be the dying body of her husband. And, you know, all of these concerns about mortality that the movie has been playing at all along come to a head. And there's no music for that. Which I thought was absolutely correct. I thought that was right, didn't you? You think there should have been music? I don't think that there should have been music, but I think that it was noteworthy that there wasn't. Yeah, I mean, that's the goods of this movie. That's certainly when they got me to tear up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I thought it was correctly unscored because... We know we're at the end of the movie. We think he might be about to die. Like, they don't need any push. They don't need any help. She tears up. She goes into the horse register. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was that was properly uh, left. I, to I also think it was proper to leave it. But can you articulate the difference? Why we were lauding Grusin for getting in there with the horse register in the first place, but we're saying that it was the correct move not to in this case? Yeah, I think the difference is where it comes in the drama. We have been brought there already Mm -hmm. by the time it happens at the end. We think the character might be about to die, so the stakes take care of themselves. I think in the first scene, he is still kind of mapping out what the movie cares about, what we're going to be moved by. And, you know, could they have gotten away without a score? Probably. They probably could. The performance is good. But it makes sense to me that at that point in the movie, the music is going to open your heart up to... Yeah, it has work to do there. I agree. And at the end, we're done. We get it. We just have a question like, does one of them die in this movie? (laughs) And we're watching on screen to see where that goes. I think that if there had been some score there, I think that if he had done something that was extremely subtle, even by the standards of this movie's subtlety, something maybe with just piano, that echoed a little bit of what he did during the first of these two scenes that we're talking about. Uh, If that had been there, I think you would have also felt like that was the right decision. I don't think this is a perfect movie by any stretch, so I'm not claiming like they really nailed quite You were saying that it was the obvious right decision for it to not be scored. It did feel right. I will tell you the truth. It did feel right. And you're saying other things would have felt right. And you're probably right. Sometimes I'm watching a movie and I think, well, what, what if I had to do this? What would I have done? If I imagine someone putting that scene in front of me and saying, can you just uh, give it a little extra? Just give, a, just give it something with some music. I would feel like I've already kind of done the thing at that point where I just play a few twinkles in between the dialogue. Right. And you want that final scene to go further if possible. Yeah. And how, how are you going to make it go further? So uh, that's what my instinct would have been. The, the answer to that question, if you put it in front of me, is I think my instinct, and uh, obviously, who cares what my instinct is? You know, I, I do. Not, I do, John. Tell me. I'm not Dave Grusin, but I think my instinct would have been to play a very pared back, subtle, spare piano rendition of what was going on in the earlier scene. Not much to it. But I think that's what I, w- what I have done. But I absolutely do agree that it is very valid 
the decision not to have score there as well. You know, one of the nicest bits of dialogue in the whole movie, I feel like, is when after he says, you know, I think I'm not dying in this scene. And she says, that's the first time I thought about your death as a real thing. Yeah. He says, how was it? And she says, you've been talking about death ever since we met, but this is the first time I really felt it. Mm -hmm. How's it feel? Oh, feels odd. Cold, I guess. Not, not that bad, really. Not so frightening, almost comforting. Not such a bad place to go. I don't know. <laughs> her uncertainty about what it meant to her emotionally, being overwhelmed and 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 saying, "I don't even know what that emotion was. It was too much for me." I think is the strength of how that scene has been written. Yeah. And so playing music that tells you that it was really scary or that it was calm would steal from you know what? that moment. Yeah, you're right. That's a very good point. That might be indeed what he took his cue from in not having a cue, that she says those very words, that I don't know what the emotion was. Maybe that is the instruction not to score that scene. So maybe you're right after all. Uh, cool. I don't know if we want to make this be a running feature, but... If you were assembling a ranking of scores, and we're cumulatively assembling one by talking about scores, would you consider On Golden Pond to be above or below How the West Was Won? Do you think it's correct that it was oh, interesting. one above it? So I think it's probably more successful in marrying with the movie. And I remember for How the West Was Won, we were talking about that the music was executed expertly, but just the conception of the movie meant that it didn't really have an interesting take on what the audience should be feeling, and therefore it didn't really have a transcendental connection with the visual. So I think on that count, On Golden Pond is absolutely better because it treats the material sensitively and we talked about some of the spots where it's particularly sensitive and interacts with the visual i think in a very interesting and very effective way in terms of the nuts and bolts the achievement in composition how the west was one is miles ahead of on golden pond right i mean just the, uh, the sheer number of notes he had to write yeah well i don't I mean do you really want to reward number of notes uh, to a certain extent, I do want to reward number of notes, yeah, because you have to know how to do them. You have to know what to do with all those notes, and he knows what to do with all of those notes, and I respect that a great deal. Okay, but, like, is a bigger building a better building? I definitely can see that How the West Was One was bigger, had more money put into it. You know, like I could picture all of those musicians. It's a big force of labor and talent that goes into it, but... I think if you have a small orchestra and some pot players and they do a really good job, that certainly should be allowed to be better if it is better. Okay. Was this better? I don't know. But I'm happy to put this above How the West Was Won on my personal list of how good the movie score is. I feel like a strength that this had that that didn't is that as you've been listening to us talking when I would let it play under us and you hear that music in the background, like... It has a weird emotional effect. It makes yeah. It makes didn't it, didn't we sound super endearing? Yeah, it sounded like something emotional is happening here. Yeah, and when you play "How the West Was Won" under people talking, it sounds like there's like some old movie going on in the background. And I feel like there's a kind of force to that. I feel like it did so much more work for the movie, and it had been built to get that work done in a way that I respect. Okay, well, I think, uh, I think that's very well said, and I think that's a really good note to end on. Uh, great. Then maybe we'll just end with you saying to end on, or unless you want to say goodbye. Uh, should I say, uh, <laughs> join us next time when we'll have another score to settle. <laughs> uh, did, we, <laughs> did we mention that that was the name of the show? Is it the name of the show? Could be. Yeah. Oh, another score to settle? That's an interesting Another score. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Multitudinous listeners, uh, write in and vote on what. Yeah, you vote. Leave, subscribe. Leave a comment. You yeah. can't yet because we're not posting this until we've done more of them. Yeah, but undoubtedly, we're on social media. Our social media press is going to leave no room for doubt as to where you should register your. Someday, vote. way down the line, after we've done these twenty-five and we are just like a huge phenomenon, we'll sure. take listener recommendations for which scores we should be doing. Write Absolutely. In. Tell us which scores you want us yeah, to talk tweet about. Tweet in right now. Yeah. Just tweet. Just tweet it. We'll we'll get it. Yeah. Tweet us at. And now listen to a later episode to find out what to tweet us at, because we don't have an account. 
maybe the last words of this podcast should be tweet us at. Presumably, you are listening to this episode because you got hooked on one of the later Slicker episodes. And we're like, I'm going to go back to the beginning and hear how these amazing podcasters got started. Was it rough at the beginning? So you're back It here. was super rough at the beginning. It was pretty rough. It's pretty inspiring, right? I mean, it makes you feel like... Hey, how far we've come. Look how far we've come. I could do that. If these guys could get from there to where they are now, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, so, uh, it's fun to be the... Uh, to knowingly be the before picture in the time capsule <laughs> we're glad that we're so inspiring to yeah. you what a journey we've taken we've really come a long way and we're so glad that you've been with us so tweet us at you